This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This podcast may have explicit content. It also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Thursday, November 21st, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Last night's debate at the Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta, Georgia, where they filmed the seminal Medea Goes to Jail. I mean, I presume. I hope they did. The candidates got into it, and then NBC cut to a commercial. Cory Booker and Kamala Harris had moments of soaring rhetoric. Amy Klobuchar had a little more room than in past debates to demonstrate her affability. Elizabeth Warren was forceful. Andrew Yang said a couple things no one else was talking about and made good sense. Biden was a bit confusing. Bernie Sanders railed against money in politics, also by implication money in general. And who'd I forget? Who'd I forget? Oh yeah, Tom Steyer probably made $200,000 in interest just by standing there. So what I'm saying was this was a debate very much like a lot of the other debates we've seen, except for Pete Buttigieg. Now, the debate was supposedly a test of the South Bend mayor's medal, and on that score, he was fine. But Buttigieg, for the first time in a debate, said something that really annoyed me. Now, I thus far have thought of Buttigieg as very well-spoken, who seemed to favor policies I personally consider sensible, and then when describing those policies, used rhetoric that I consider responsible. But then he was challenged a little bit about his relative lack of experience. And get this, he tried to turn the obvious negative into a positive. It turns out that not having experience is the best experience of all. That is, if you modify the word experience with the word Washington. Let's give a listen. So first of all, Washington experience is not the only experience that matters. There's more than 100 years of Washington experience on this stage. And where are we right now as a country? All right. Now, you can regard that as a pretty standard tact to take from someone inexperienced to rail against the usual way of doing things, to claim you've got the fresh perspective, to talk about how you're not contaminated by the old ways of thinking. I mean, Trump did that. Wait a minute. Trump did that. But that's not why I'm against it. First of all, Mayor Pete This works okay when the governor or the mayor of a pretty big city that's bigger than Norwalk says it. Oh, no, not Norwalk, Connecticut. Norwalk, California has a population bigger than South Bend. I'm not just saying that's a city out of your league, but League City, League City, Texas is also bigger than South Bend. League City, Lakewood, New Jersey, bigger than South Bend. I could do this all day. I love listing cities bigger than South Bend, but it's not really about the size of the municipality. It's about the motion of the notion. And Buttigieg doesn't have that dreaded Washington experience. All right, if we're going to hold you to that, please never again align yourself with President Obama, obviously sullied by eight years in the district, ruined him. Don't mention JFK. I mean, that guy was a congressman at 30, a senator at 36th, and then a president, Washington, Washington, Washington did it all in Washington. The guy leaves Washington. Look what happens. Here's the real problem with running against the notion of Washington. 
It's obviously been Republican obstructionism that makes Washington a place where progress goes to die. There are a raft of programs that can't get done because Washington wants to do them, just not the Republican part of Washington, i.e. Mitch McConnell's against them. So if you play this whole game, oh, Washington is this vast wasteland, you know what you're doing? You're crediting uninformed cynicism and you're denigrating the potential power of the federal government. Yeah. And also, while it's true that Buttigieg doesn't have Washington experience, he doesn't even have Indianapolis experience. So what's the argument here? That every capital, be it a state capital or national capital, being in that capital takes away from your bold, visionary way of seeing the world? When Buttigieg is criticized for losing by a large margin in his one statewide race, I tend to give the guy some leeway. Indiana is a very Republican state, would be hard for a young guy like him to win in the statewide race against Richard Murdoch to be the treasurer. So what I'm saying is I try to be realistic and fair. Buttigieg was not extending the same consideration to my intelligence. He's at 20 something percent in a lot of polls in the early states, meaning that Almost 80% of Democratic primary voters right now favor a person who lives in Washington or lived very close to Washington with a good Amtrak connection. Look, this isn't a huge thing. Buttigieg didn't lie. He just said something you'd expect a typical politician to say to cover up for a deficiency. But that's the thing. It's the argument you would expect of a typical politician, which Buttigieg has not been to his benefit or should we say, has not been thus far. On the show today, I spiel about the testimony before Congress of a great staffer, Fiona Hill, sturdy, steady, stiff upper lip, also stiff lower lip. What I'm saying is her lips really didn't move. Very straight line, exactly horizontal, zero degree incline on those lips. She was great and definitely does not deserve my extraneous lip commentary. She did earn my esteem. But first, David Shulkin was the head of the VA, a Washington insider who actually advocates that his former agency be taken out of the cabinet in an acknowledgement that the services the VA provides couldn't be more widespread to all walks of life in America. The former Obama cabinet official was kept on by President Trump until he wasn't. It's all detailed in Shulkin's book, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, Our Broken Government and the Plight of Veterans, an in-depth discussion up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Veterans Administration has a budget of 200 plus billion dollars, has 375,000 employees, serves millions of veterans. It's grown from 54 hospitals in 1932 today, 153 medical centers and more than 700 outpatient facilities running this behemoth of an agency, second only to the Department of Defense, was David Shulkin. He was the ninth Secretary of Veterans Affairs, a cabinet position. He's out with a new book called It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, our 
broken government and the plight of veterans. Secretary Shulkin, welcome. I'm glad to be here. Was it hard when you got the call? Not a veteran, but someone with experience running hospitals, huge institutions efficiently. Was it hard to answer the call to service to be the secretary for President Obama? Well, I did what most people do when they're faced with these choices. I got a blank sheet of paper, drew a line down the middle, and had a pros and a cons list. Yes. Very quickly, the cons filled up very high. I'd have to move to Washington, leave my job go into government, risk my reputation. I didn't even know then you could be fired by a tweet, else that would have been on yeah, the list. Yeah, you probably couldn't then no. at that time. No, couldn't even, <laughs> couldn't even imagine that. that. Yeah. And on the pro side was simply, how could I say no? Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like if anybody deserved the best care anywhere, it was our veterans. And I was reading in the paper that they were having all these problems, these long wait times. So I really felt like if I could help, which I felt like I could, I had to say yes. And so I stopped thinking about it and just said yes. Did you, was the offer a surprise? Did you campaign for the job? I mean, it's great that you felt you could help and you were in a position as running a huge hospital system here in New York to help. But how would they find you and how would you make it known that you'd be open to this? Well, did you ever hear the saying that there's no free lunch? Yeah. Well, I thought I was invited to a free lunch. Somebody Uh asked me to lunch, and we were talking, and just a normal conversation. And the person, as we were leaving, said, do you have any regrets in your career? And I said, I've had a great career. I don't have any regrets. And I said, you know, maybe I'm reading about these horrible wait times for our veterans, and I feel terrible that they're going through this, and I wish there was something I could do, Mm -hmm. sort of almost a rhetorical question. And then about an hour later, my cell phone rings. I never gave my cell phone number to him, but my cell phone rings and it was the White House. And they said, we'd like to talk to you about helping fix the VA. Tell me how. So when you came in and there was this crisis of waiting times, how did you diagnose the problem? Must be a little bit like medicine. How did you diagnose the problem and then come up with a course of action? Well, I think you're absolutely right. You don't start jumping in to solve a problem unless you know what the problem is. So asking the right questions was, I think, the key. And the question that I asked when I got into the VA was how many veterans were waiting for urgent care? Because Mm -hmm. urgent care meant to me that a veteran, if they weren't getting the care in the right time, could be harmed. And so once I asked that and they had to go back and look at the data very differently, the answer became clear that there were 57,000 veterans waiting for urgent care more than 30 days. And that, of course, defined the problem for me because that was totally unacceptable. So we opened up every VA medical center at that point in what I called a national stand down, which is a military term that you stop what you're doing and you focus on that priority. And over the course of the first weekend of the stand down, we started with 57,000 veterans. We ended Monday morning with less than 1,000 veterans waiting for care with urgent problems. And from there, we began to whittle that down and then put in same day services so that no veteran who had an urgent problem, couldn't be seen on the same day at every VA across the VA medical centers. And then finally, what we did was we posted our wait times publicly, and they still are posted, the VA being the only healthcare system in this country that I'm aware of that posts its wait times publicly. And it's the wait times are better than outside the VA, better than the hospital I might go to. Yeah. I published a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association last year that compared VA wait times to the private sector, and they are better than what you would find in the private sector. Now, it wasn't that way when I first came to the VA, but we showed that we reduced the wait times while the private sector during that 
same time period did not reduce its wait times. It seems to me that we could probably talk for hours and not really touch on politics per se, not that it didn't inform what you did, but tell me if this observation strikes you as true. It seems that among the cabinet departments, and I've had former secretaries of defense here, and I've had other cabinet officials here, it seems to me that the VA could be, in your experience, maybe contradicts this, but it could in very many ways be apart from politics, more so than, I don't know, the Department of even Education or Labor or Housing. Well, first of all, the VA always operated that way. It operated outside of the Washington bubble, worked in a bipartisan way where politics really didn't come into it. And in fact, you know, as you know, I was confirmed 100 to zero and all of the legislation that I got done my first year as secretary was done in a bipartisan way. Right. Unfortunately, that's now changed. And now VA has entered into the mess that all of Washington's into and everything's turning out to be partisan. And because of that and because of the experience I've had, I believe that VA should be taken out of this political environment, that it should be run much like we run Amtrak or the post office with it. We got to name something that is seen to be run efficiently in that example. Well, look, national pe- parks, <laughs> people, people get their mail every day and the trains. Run. I love, I love the post office. Don't get me there wrong. There you go. Yeah. And, and, and so what I think we need to do is we need a group of people, what I would call board of directors who have knowledge of the services, particularly healthcare that's provided, who do not have political affiliations. We need a term limit for the secretary so that we're not having a constant turnover every two years like what we've been seeing. And that this is too important an issue to the country to take care of our veterans, to allow it to be subjected to the types of political arguments that we're seeing today. But you were a cabinet official. You went to the State of the Union, except when you didn't, when you were the designated survivor. Would you want future secretaries not to be in the cabinet? I think where I've come out on this is, is that it's more important that there be a focus on the mission Mm -hmm. and being part of the political environment is not serving veterans in the way that it had in the past. Now, I wish we could roll back time and I wish that the VA had stayed out of the political mess that, you know, that we're now seeing, but you can't do that. And so I think we either have to have a complete reset of the environment in Washington and allow people who focus on their job to be able to do it without politics, or we need to change the structure. Yeah. And you say that in the book. I have to say, reading the book, it gets to how you left, uh, were, were forced out by tweet. But you do consistently say and give President Trump credit for seeming to have a bona fide interest in the best interests of veterans and maybe not having a lot of follow through or global foresight. But when he talked to you, we really seemed the way you portrayed seemed to really want to help the veterans and empowered you to do so. Yeah. You know, my job was there to help veterans and to make the system work better. And because of that, I focused on that. There was a lot of other noise in Washington, a lot of things going on that, frankly, I tried to keep blinders on and stay out of. On occasion, there were issues where I felt like I had to speak up, like the Charlottesville issue. I certainly could not stay silent on that issue, and I didn't. And I thought I might get fired because I spoke up. And what was the blowback for that? Uh, Nothing. Nothing. I think that... um, I was surprised. Look, I'm not 
political. I didn't go in because I was part of somebody's campaign, and I was going to speak my mind and stand up for my principles. And ultimately, I think that did lead to the tweet that ended my time as secretary. This is So I want to ask your assessment of this because for the last year and a half, Donald Trump, uh, when criticized about anything, the Mueller investigation, the Ukraine investigation, Syria, will often pivot to his great achievement with veterans. And he'll say, we passed VA choice. You go out now, you get a doctor, you fix yourself up. The doctor sends us the bill, we pay for it. And you know what? It doesn't matter because the life and the veteran is more important. But we also happen to save a lot of money doing that. Can you believe it? And then after he signed that legislation, which I think was... The Mission Act. The Mission Act, right. He would say, the Obama administration didn't get this done, and I got this done. I gave the veterans choice. What's your assessment of the accuracy of that? Well, the facts are that the choice program was put in place in 2014 when President Obama was president. And so this was President Obama's program in response to the wait time crisis. It was a three-year program that was going to end in 2017, Mm -hmm. and President Trump built it into a permanent way that veterans can get health care in the future. So I don't think that this was not his program, but he does deserve credit for building this into the permanent way of delivering health care for veterans. What happened, and this was reported in ProPublica, and I want to ask you about when this became your understanding, but... According to uh, some very good reporting, there was a troika of individuals who are members of the Mar-a-Lago Club, and they included Ike Perlmutter, who's the chairman of Marvel Entertainment. So if you like the Avengers, maybe this will color your appreciation. And a lawyer named Mark Sherman. Yeah, and then Bruce Moskowitz was also involved. These were members of the club who had their own, they weren't veterans, but they had their own opinion on how the VA should be run, and they wanted to bring it towards more of a privatized model. And as members of Mar-a-Lago, they had Donald Trump's ear, and their wishes became dictates to you. Is that how it happened? I think before I ever got involved with President Trump and the administration, These three individuals were advisors to the president and had clearly been asked to help try to oversee some of the changes and give advice for how VA could improve, because this was something that in the campaign that President-elect Trump had said was very important to him and he was going to fix. And so these three individuals continued to provide advice to both the White House and to me as individuals as did a large number of other outside individuals who offered their help and advice. And so that was part of the way that I think a good, effective executive makes change by seeking out people who can get help and advice. FDR had a kitchen cabinet, you know, Clinton would call people he knew. So, okay, these people had Donald Trump's ear. But was their policy directives, did it become official policy of the VA? Did you see that happening? I think that they offered advice and input, but they did not have policy roles. They did not make the policy or or interfere with the policy, I think. They didn't interfere. So their policy ideas didn't become policy. It wasn't for, forced upon Yeah, you. of course. I'm not aware of what their conversations were with the president or with members of the White House administration, but certainly mm-hmm. at VA, I think that they would offer advice, but they were not in policymaking roles. 
How, when did you become aware of um, how much advice they were given because there were some emails that were revealed, Freedom of Information Act showed, that they were having a lot of conversations with the White House and with people who were actually, you know, appointed to be uh, to, uh, the political appointees to the VA? I don't think they made any attempt to hide the fact that they were in discussions. There was a famous scene that happened to be televised in the West Wing where one day the president and I are sitting at the same table and he turned to me and said, are you going to be at the meeting at Mar-a-Lago this weekend? And I really didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, this is where we're going to talk about VA and veterans policy. And I said, no, sir, I'm not because I wasn't invited to it. Yeah. And, that was one and, of those viral things. Right. It turned a into a yeah. meme and you know, people thought naturally, well, this is sort of strange. Why is there a meeting about veterans in VA and the secretary's not going to it. So I was aware that those conversations were going on without me. Yes. When you were fired by tweet, there was the story of your wife's itinerary on a vacation, which uh, bore at best a passing resemblance to the truth. What really did get you fired, do you think? I think that I had been in a direct battle with several of the political appointees in the White House about my unwillingness to go along with measures that would move VA to privatizing faster than I felt was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I felt that what was being recommended didn't serve the veterans' interest well, and that was the only reason I was there, and I let them know that. And I think they were very frustrated that I wasn't willing to drop my objections because it was politically expedient. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I always said to my friends and my family, look, you know, I serve at the pleasure of the president. I may be fired any day. And if it's fired over things that I believe in, you know, that's what's going to happen. You, you were fired by tweet a year and a half ago. Have you lived with this job more than you have other jobs that you left? Yeah, I think, I think once you've had the ability to experience and meet these men and women that have served in our military and come back and need our help, that that never is going to leave you. And so I believe that I will remain committed to advocating for veterans and doing whatever I can to help as long as I live, because these are such incredible people that really do deserve better care than what they're getting. And the name of the book is It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, and I think it comes through how earnest you are about that sentiment. But I want to push you on this. Is it hard to serve your country because of, as you say, you know, politics in Washington, D.C., or should the finger more correctly be pointed at this specific administration? Well, first of all, I think the title, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, has a double meaning. It really is written for veterans because when you go off to serve and you come back, you shouldn't have to experience the bureaucracy and the barriers that so many of our veterans have. But the other meaning is, is that if we expect and we need people who are willing to come out of the private sector to come and to help solve these problems that are complex in government, if we continue to treat people through personal attacks and the type of toxicity of the environment we have that prevents them from doing the job, people are going to not want to come. And I worry about the brain drain that we're seeing out of government today, but also whether future people will be willing to come to serve their government. And I do believe that that is an environment today that there's enough, there's enough blame on both sides that create this type of environment. 
But certainly, I think the leader, the president, should be setting the tone for the country. And one of those jobs should be to create an environment of respect and one that honors public service. David Shulkin was the ninth Secretary of Veterans Affairs. If you're saying, wait, doesn't the VA go back to the Civil War? Yes, but it was only a cabinet position under George H.W. Bush, making David Shulkin the ninth Secretary of Veterans Affairs. He is the author of It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, Our Broken Government, and the Plight of Veterans. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Yesterday was marked by the low-grade doofiness of Gordon Sondland. Remember this moment? But you remember that call specifically exactly what the president said to you in response to your question about what do you want? Why is that? I remember the first girl I kissed. I mean, I remember certain the, things. Well, I won't say that. <laughs> Update today, Devin Nunes added that girl to the list of witnesses. Adam Schiff will not be allowed to be called. But seriously, after a day of Sondland damning the Trump administration but with a grin and a guffaw, today... We met the figure of Fiona Hill. At one point during her many hours of testimony, she appeared to portray an expression other than seriousness, but it just might have been a trick of light. She was stern. She was steadfast. She was steely. She was unbelievably impressive in intellect and comportment. One brief moment that I will play. She was relaying a story about a dramatic moment when then National Security Advisor John Bolton reacted to an inappropriate request to link aid to the Burisma investigation. Listen to how she talks about this. And then he looked up to the clock and, you know, at his watch or towards his wrist in any case. Um, again, I was sitting behind him. No, wait. I said watch. I do not wish to imply that it was a watch. This presumes a timepiece. That may not have been in evidence. It was, in fact, his wrist. For years on this show, I have said that competent people doing their jobs will save America. Dr. Fiona Hill seems as competent as can be. She spoke about how she immediately recognized and reported that U.S. foreign policy toward Ukraine was being subsumed by what she called a political errand. Good phrase. Here, in an answer to Republican counsel Steve Castor, she explains that, yes, it is within the president's ability to remove an ambassador, as Trump did with Ambassador Yovanovitch, but legitimate policy considerations do not fully explain that decision. It was very clear at this point that there was, uh, let's just say, a different channel in operation in relations to Ukraine, one that was domestic and political in nature. Unlike with a lot of other witnesses, including David Holmes, who was right there testifying next to her, no Republican dared tangle with Hill. In fact, Trump has not, thus far, has not denigrated her. This, to my mind, makes Fiona Hill the only woman who has offered a high-profile denunciation of Trump's actions and policies who the president has not attacked. I don't think every critic can come with Fiona Hill's impeccable credentials or steely expression or unblinking focus or scads of experience. So it's unlikely that she will inspire a trend of presidential reticence to denigrate. But this is it is a very nice pause, is it not? Perhaps it was in this anecdote, as elicited by Representative Jackie Spears, that offers an explanation as to why. Dr. Hill, I want to... Um verify this story. I understand that when you were 11 years old, 
Um, there was a schoolboy who set your pigtails on fire, and you were taking a test. You turned around and with your hands um, snuffed out the fire and then proceeded to finish your test. Is that a true story? It is a true story. I was a bit surprised to see that pop up today. It's one of the stories I occasionally tell because it had some very unfortunate consequences. Afterwards, my mother gave me a bowl haircut. <laughs> so for the... Um, the school photograph later in that week, I look like Richard III, or as if I'm going to be in a permanent... Richard III. I mean, that's fodder for Trump, right? I mean, can you see him tweeting about last king of the Plantagenet dynasty? Sad. But Trump has held off. And maybe it's because the anecdote and her testimony served notice. That even though government bureaucrats are always said to be running around with their hair on fire, this is one woman who will not be put off by some bully pulling at her pigtails. And that's it for today's show. When Daniel Schrader, just producer, was in grade school, the boy behind him in gym class attempted to give him a purple nurple. But with a clever sidestep and limited jujitsu training, Daniel did not allow his nurple to become be-purpled and delivered onto the would-be assailant an indigo pinky toe. Christina DeJosa, another just producer, once endured a wet willy in an academic setting. It was while defending her senior thesis she expected more from a department head. The gist. We've been known to put up with a wedgie, two noogies, and the ravages of the paddywhack machine, but we never wavered in our quest to correct every fifth grader who called a fudgesicle a fudgicle. Philistines. Oomperu depperu dupperu, and thanks for listening.